Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, December the 9th. And thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you all had a fabulous weekend. I was able to uh, go and get a little holiday shopping done myself, wrapped a few presents, uh, so that was good. Got a little bit of a, a, a start there on my holiday duties, so happy to, to slowly start getting that stuff out of the way. It definitely makes uh, those last few days before Christmas a little less stressful knowing that uh, all I need to get done is done. Not that that I am done yet, but uh, definitely got a good start. So uh, definitely uh, happy with my progress so far. And, and uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks here, I'll make sure to continue to get some of that done. And I hope all of you out there have, have started doing the same because I don't want to see you all getting stressed out as uh, the 25th approaches. Yes, we are just 16 days away, so not a whole lot of time to get ready for, for those holidays. Uh, what else did I do this weekend? I watched a little hockey. My Leafs scored a big win over the St. Louis Blues, the Stanley Cup champs. So that was fun to watch. Also got to watch some football and then uh, took in the sound of music at Sagebrush Theater over the weekend. So not a terrible couple of days off for this guy, and I, and I really hope you are all uh, tuning in. I can say the same thing as well, that you also had a not terrible couple of days off. I got a good show lined up for you here today. My first guest is going to be Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Uh, we are going to be discussing new Indigenous intercultural competency training that is being launched by the BC Law Society. The Law Society's governing board of benchers has determined that lawyer competence includes knowledge of the history of Aboriginal Crown relations, the history and legacy of residential schools, and specific legislation regarding Indigenous peoples of Canada. Beginning in 2021, all practicing lawyers in BC will be required to take an Indigenous Intercultural Competency Training course. The course content will be finalized next year and will cover specific topics and themes referred to in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report and calls to action. The course is also going to include information and knowledge that prepares lawyers and participate in and respond to changes to provincial laws as contemplated by the recently enacted Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Kyle and I will discuss this new training program and why it is something that lawyers in British Columbia should be taking in. We're also going to be uh, chatting a little bit about proposed new legislation in Saskatchewan, which aims to modernize the jury selection process. The process includes excluding chiefs and other band counselors allowing spouses of municipal officials in the jury pool and targeting specific geographic areas. The changes to the Jury Act will allow those responsible for generating lists of potential jurors to better determine specific geographical areas from which to summon those for the jury pool through a targeted draw. Amendments will allow the province to consider travel time for potential jurors while also ensuring it's not unnecessarily shrinking the jury pool. And the hope is that by making it easier for potential jurors to attend proceedings, it will improve jury participation and representation. So perhaps these proposed changes that are being looked at in Saskatchewan could also be considered here in B.C., so I'll be talking to Kyla to get her take on that to see if this is something that, you know, as we uh, watch it unfold in Saskatchewan, uh, if it works, first and foremost, and then if it passes, I guess, first and foremost, then if it works, and then looking to see if it is something that should be considered here uh, in British Columbia. So I'll be talking with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee in just a short amount of time, so don't go anywhere if you want to hear more about that conversation. Also on today's show, I will be joined in studio by the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce at this week's Kamloops City Council meeting, tomorrow's 
Kamloops City Council meeting. Elected officials will be discussing the city center and North Shore revitalization tax exemption bylaws. City staff are making some proposed changes to those bylaws. Under the current eligibility criteria, only improvements made to pre-existing commercial buildings are eligible for a 10-year 100% tax exemption, and the owner must provide improvements to the existing building that have a value of at least $100,000 or 30% of the assessed value. However, new standalone commercial developments within the specified areas of the bylaws are not eligible for this tax exemption other than for a hotel, below or above ground parking structures, or high tech usage. So the uh, the city went about putting together a group that looked at uh, you know whether some proposed changes should be made to the current bylaws as they exist now in order to help uh, increase development that is occurring in these areas. So that's uh, you know in the downtown or or city center if you will, and along the North Shore. Uh, the report indicates the last major development in the city center was the Sandman Hotel, which was built in 2011. So eight years since any major construction project took place uh, in this in the Kamloops city center. So quite some time since the last major uh, build was done. And I'm sure there are, uh, you know, some out there who feel that, uh, you know, that is not necessarily good for business. And, and uh, I know when we're looking at this specific uh, tax exemption criteria that exists, uh, there are communities that have uh, included commercial use in their downtown, such as uh, Kelowna, uh, Prince George, Victoria, a number of other similar sized cities to Kamloops have uh, put this type of bylaw tax exemption within uh, their planning structure, and I know that uh, maybe it has cost Kamloops a, a thing or two when it comes to new development, but I'll be talking with Josh Knack, the uh, president of the Kamloops Chamber, in a little bit to uh, to see if that is the case. He was a part of this group that went about looking at these proposed changes and, and helped develop some of the recommendations that are being made, so I'm sure he will have uh, some more input to, to give on that topic. And to end off today's show, I will be joined by the Kamloops Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane to look back at the week Weekend that was the Blazers scored a shootout win in Brandon on Friday before falling to the Winnipeg Ice in overtime on Saturday. Pucks back to the faceoff to the left of the goaltender Dylan Duran off the draw. Tepley will control. Tepley feeds it back and it's Orzik now. Orzik now trying to find a loose puck in front, tipped and stick on it there by Johnson. Johnson picks it up behind the Blazer goal. He tries to center and they score. Tepley gets the overtime winner for the ice. Blazers never had the puck in overtime. And Kootenay gets the overtime win here tonight, 5-4. To Blazers led 3-0 and 4-3. But will uh, take the loss here on the Winnipeg Teddy Bear Toss night. Yes, the Blazers were outscored 4-1 to in the third period on Saturday night and ended up falling 5-4 in the extra frame with Winnipeg's Michael Tepley scoring the overtime winner, his uh, 13th goal of the WHL season. Three out of four points, though, never a bad thing for the Blazers. Uh, but at the same time, some very good news for the Blazers uh, as star Connor Zeri was a last-minute addition to the Canadian World Junior Selection Camp, and he is going to replace Moncton's, Moncton's Jacob Pelche. Get off the bus pretty late last night in, in the hotel and pulled me aside and then kind of let me know that Hockey Canada called and I got I am gonna get a chance to go to a uh, World Junior Camp here so I was I was pretty excited a little bit speechless because I wasn't really expecting it kind of had it out of my mind a bit now just trying to focus on on playing here and yeah. now that I get another opportunity I'm pretty excited.
Yeah, so Zary obviously happy to be uh, selected to attend that camp in Oakville, which begins today. Uh, Pelche from Moncton, as mentioned, is unable to attend camp due to injuries, so Zary uh, will be taking his spot at the selection camp. Zary will be one of 31 players attending camp, which starts in Oakville today. 22 players will be named to the team with the annual tournament set to begin in the Czech Republic on Boxing Day. So that's everything that is on the docket for me here today. So hopefully uh, something in there piqued your interest and we're going to have some pretty good discussions starting with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Uh, that is going to be coming up next. Indigenous uh, training for BC lawyers, which will begin as mandatory training in 2021, as well as some proposed changes in Saskatchewan's jury selection process and whether or not those would be good ideas here in BC. That's all going to be coming up after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday, December 9th. Hope you all had a great weekend. Uh, I'm joined now on the line by my favorite guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be your favorite guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not going to change anytime soon, I can promise you that. Um, well, thanks. <laughs> so let's start uh, here in our conversation this morning about this new Indigenous Intercultural Competency Training. It's a new training course here that will be done uh, online by lawyers that practice in BC, all lawyers that practice here in the province. Uh, and the curriculum, I guess, will be finalized next year and then made mandatory for all lawyers come 2021. So, Kyla, uh, just what is your initial uh, reaction, I guess, to this move by the, the BC Law Society and just uh, making the this training course, uh, this First Nation training course, mandatory for lawyers? I mean, do you think it's a step in the right direction here? Oh, I absolutely think this is a step in the right direction. This is an important task that the Law Society needed to do in response to recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, as well as in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report. Um, and so it's nice to see the Law Society of British Columbia making this mandatory and bringing this in and, and being the first Law Society, to my knowledge, in Canada that has done so. Yeah, and it says this training will provide lawyers with uh, education about uh, the history of Aboriginal Crown Relations, uh, legacy of residential schools, and how specific legislation regarding Indigenous peoples created the issues that reconciliation is seeking to address. So uh, I'm just curious from your experience, I guess, how familiar are lawyers currently in BC when it comes to this Aboriginal history, um, I guess specifically as it pertains to, to their dealings with the law? It really depends on what area lawyers practice in. I think most criminal lawyers do have a lot of familiarity with it um, for the sad reason that uh, Indigenous people in Canada are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and so they deal with Indigenous clients. We have things like Ledoux reports, where uh, which require judges to take into consideration um, the legacy of, of colonization and how it's impacted and led to people being involved in the criminal justice system. So criminal lawyers generally develop a lot of competency in that area from having to deal with it all the time. But as soon as you start to move outside criminal law and outside Aboriginal law, you get lawyers who have really very little knowledge, unless they gained it outside of their practice, about these issues. And that's what's concerning. Um, because Indigenous people are not just in, in engaging with the justice system through their cases involving criminal charges or through cases involving litigation of Indigenous rights and title issues or Indigenous law issues. They're also engaging with the justice system 
when it comes to buying a house and dealing with real estate transactions or a family law claim or a civil claim or any other type of issue. Um, and that's where we have this big competency gap by and large in the profession. Now, from from that response, I mean, the the idea would be, I guess, to, to better equip lawyers in order to handle law uh, law cases outside of just criminal law, like you had mentioned, but criminal law as well, but in all aspects of, of our uh, of our system here. Um, but I guess, can you uh, think of, is this enough? I mean, it's a six-hour training course from what I understand. You're going to go online, it's going to take six hours to go through this course, uh, you know, so you basically spend not even a full work day kind of going over this information. Um, I mean, how much can you really learn in six hours? There's not a lot that they can pack into six hours, and and obviously there are going to be things that are going to have to be left out or only touched on uh, very slightly, and this may not prove to be enough, but it's at least a starting point. It's a point for the law society to say everybody has to do this. Everybody has to start to get this education and training, and if they need to expand it by making you know supplemental courses that lawyers take later on in their in their careers, like at year five you take another course or a refresher or or you know, a more specific targeted course, they can do that. This is a foot in the door and it's an opportunity to at least get the profession engaging with these issues as a whole, rather than only those people who have to deal with them on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so uh, definitely a, a step in the right direction, and uh, um, you know, 2021. I guess it's still a little bit of ways away, but uh, definitely some some steps are being taken to start to incorporate this. Um, I guess, do you think this is going to have a a, a huge impact on the way uh, lawyers, I guess, handle cases that are involving Indigenous people? Do you think that you know, once they take this training um, and, and learn a little bit more about the history as it pertains to Aboriginal Crown relations, for one uh, example, or, or or other aspects of of the judicial system? I guess. Do you think this is going to have a massive change or shift in the way that the, the lawyer-client relationship will be handled when it comes to, you know, that Indigenous population? Assuming everybody takes it seriously, then yes, I think that it will. Um, and the reason I say that is there's a lot of information that people don't know about the history of Indigenous people in the justice system in Canada. Like, for example, that, you know, until the 50s, Indigenous people were legislatively prohibited from hiring lawyers. So, you know, having engagement in the justice system when you can't and you're prohibited from having counsel, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that. And I think when they hear that, it gives them a different understanding of, of the relationship between Indigenous people and the justice system. And by and large, a level of distrust that comes for it because it was something that for the vast majority of our country's history just wasn't available to Indigenous people as a realistic opportunity to deal with their issues. And I think when people start learning facts like that, they will start to become more uh, aware of uh, how history has impacted their relationships with the people that they're dealing with now. Yeah, I definitely uh, did not know that. So uh, maybe it's uh, some training that maybe not just lawyers should be taking, but just the general public as well, or or at least getting some sort of uh, lesson on when we're in school to learn some of this stuff, because I think there's a lot that we don't know, and um, it's good that the lawyers are taking the step in the right direction, but maybe the general population should as well. Uh, here with Acumen Law is Kyla Lee. So from that, I guess I wanted to shift a little bit here to some proposed legislation that's going on in Saskatchewan um, that could alter the way that juries are selected. So the province's Justice Minister, Don Morgan, uh, is looking to broaden where they send out notices to. 
uh, with the current exclusion of spouses of Reeves, mayors, city councilors, and other officials to be removed to allow for increased juror eligibility and participation. So spouses of mayors and councilors would be able to participate in a jury. Um, so let, I just want to start there. Um, you know, do you know why spouses of elected officials are exempt from the jury process as it stands now? I mean, uh, I assume this is also the case in BC, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense as to why that might be. I think historically the concern was about the connection between the lawmaker um, and the, you know, the, the jury who is, you know, potentially interpreting and applying the law and determining whether or not somebody's guilty or somebody's liable civilly for uh, for an action. Um, and if you have this close connection to the lawmaker, there's a concern that you might inherently be biased towards the lawmaker as opposed to uh, neutral and independent. But I think we've, we've evolved past that. I think that type of thinking comes from a time, by and large, where women were considered to be property, uh, less considered to be independent individuals with their own thoughts uh, and ideas about how the way the world works and their own opinions. And so I think that change is reflective of, of where we have moved in a society in looking at marital relationships between individuals as opposed to, uh, you know, relationships of ownership. And, and then to follow that up, so to make the act consistent with the exclusion of mayors and city councillors and other elected municipal officials as it stands now from, from the jury selection process, this legislation that's being proposed also contains amendments that it would exclude chiefs and council members from First Nation bands from serving as jurors. I mean, uh, isn't that a little baffling, I guess, that elected officials um, you know, in municipalities were, were not allowed to be on a jury, but, uh, but chiefs and, and band councillors were allowed to be? I mean, there, there seems to be a, a lack of consistency there. There is a lack of consistency there, but I actually don't agree with that amendment. I think that uh, allowing chiefs and counselors to be members of juries is actually a better idea. Um, and the specific reason why I don't agree with it is that we already have problems with getting Indigenous people to show up uh, for jury duty to participate in, in the jury selection process and to serve on juries. We see juries that don't represent the Indigenous uh, fabric of this country and there's a lot of complaints and litigation that's been uh, been had about how jurors are, are primarily white and how as an Indigenous person it's hard to get a, a non um, uh, non-Caucasian uh, non person on your jury, somebody who can maybe understand where you're coming from. Um, and so I think by excluding chiefs and band counselors, even though they might be members of a level of government, um, we're actually decreasing the number of eligible jurors from the Indigenous population, which is actually going to perpetuate the issue of not having adequate representation of Indigenous people in juries. Yeah, that, that all does make sense. I didn't necessarily think of it that way, but I know there is a lot of issues when it comes to getting Indigenous representation on our juries. And uh, yeah, I guess if you're taking uh, some of the perspective pool out of the running to, to be on a jury, then you are uh, uh, potentially reducing the, the amount of people that uh, would be able to take part in the jury process. So definitely makes sense. Well, I'm definitely going to be uh, kind of watching how this legislation moves forward in Saskatchewan, and then uh, I'm sure the other provinces will be as well to see if it's uh, going to pertain to them. Uh, yeah, so anyway, thanks so much for doing this, Kyla. Always appreciate you coming on the program and uh, look forward to doing it again next week thanks for having me all right that was acumen laws kyla lee coming up after the break i'm going to be talking about the revitalization tax exemption here in kamloops uh yeah we're going to be talking with the kamloops chamber of commerce president about that and what it means here after this radio nl radio nl.com local news now
listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday, December 9th. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. Kamloops City Council is set to meet tomorrow. And among the agenda items are some proposed amendments to the City Center and North Shore Revitalization Tax Exemption Bylaws. City staff are making some proposed changes to those bylaws. Under current eligibility criteria, only improvements made to pre-existing commercial buildings are eligible for a 10-year 100% tax exemption. And the owner must provide improvements to the existing building that have a value of at least $100,000 or or 30% of the assessed value, whichever is higher. However, new standalone commercial developments within the specified areas of those bylaws are not eligible for that tax exemption other than a hotel below or above ground parking structures or high tech use. I am joined now in studio by Joshua Nack, president of the Kamloops Chamber, to talk about these proposed changes. Josh, how are you doing today? Great. Great. Um, so kind of a, a bit to unpack there. Uh, I'm still sort of wrapping my head, and I've read this report <laughs> several times. But uh, I guess just what are your – you were a part of this uh, group that was right going over these proposed changes and, and making some recommendations to staff on how to go about doing this. So um, maybe, I guess, for, for those who, who aren't familiar, what, what exactly are we looking at here? How is this going to help improve development with these proposed sure. exemptions? Yeah, we were part of a group, and actually this was a, this was a policy that was passed by the Kamloops Chamber um, asking that the city look at extending this. So, I mean, basically, you, you you summarized it very well there, but the buildings that applied for a tax exemption um, were limited. It, it, it did not include general commercial use, and, and the reason that that tax exemption is important is that uh, right now we're competing with, with other municipalities for very significant uh, relocation opportunities of, of, uh, of businesses. I mean, there's, there are businesses that are looking at leaving the lower mainland, cost of housing, cost of lots of different things, and they are going to different municipalities, and uh, places like Kelowna, places like Prince George, have these have these tax exemptions and what it does is it just it just allows that that lease rate to be a little bit more affordable for a 10-year period of time and the great thing about it is it doesn't actually cost the city any money because this is really only on the on the increased value of a property so if you've got a property uh, just a, a chunk of land it's worth a million dollars and you put a five million dollar building on it you'll still pay taxes on that one million dollars uh, it's just the municipal portion that gets waived for 10 years but uh, but following that 10-year period of time obviously that those taxes are there. It still drives. It still drives the jobs. It drives the density, and that's the other key thing about this. Is this uh, this tax exemption is in two of the key places that were identified in Camplan, the uh, downtown core and also the North Shore core. So again, it's driving that density to the areas that the city wants to see it in, and where it really makes sense. Yeah, so you had mentioned a few places like Kelowna, uh, you know, Prince George, Nanaimo, Abbotsford, a lot of places that are, you know, similar in size to Kamloops already have these sort of exemptions in place. So essentially, you're just trying to put us at a competitive, not, well, we're currently, I guess, at a competitive disadvantage when trying to attract new buildings here. Uh, so just looking to sort of level the playing field. Well, I mean, we're still better than Kelowna or Prince George, just for a myriad <laughs> of reasons. But taxes is just a small uh, a small part of that. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's just allowing us to be, be competitive. And if you look around right now, there hasn't been a new purpose-built uh, commercial building constructed in Kamloops in quite some time in the downtown or in the North Shore or North Shore area. And and there, there are a lot of them that are sort of in the works right now that are under discussion. And uh, hopefully this is enough to push those over the top. Yeah, so from what I understand there, the Salmon Hotel, which was built in 2011, has sort of been the only real new significant uh, commercial development constructed in the downtown. Um, you know, so eight years, or over eight years we're talking now, I guess. Uh, uh, do you really believe that this exemption will increase significant builds here in this area? I mean, it doesn't feel, and the, I'm pretty new to the town still, that there's a, a lot of space to build on. I mean, what, what, what is your perspective from that? 
Well, I mean, one thing, if you look uh, look downtown, there's there's a lot of surface parking lots, and uh, a lot of those parking lots could could move could be moved underground. Um, I, I know that parking is one of those things where you hear hear about that a lot. In fact, I think last time I was in, we were talking about parking, and uh, and I think if we can replace some of those surface parking lots with with underground parking, and and have uh, you know, and have have business on top of that, have business, have residential. It already included the mixed use, but what that really only allows for then is retail on the you know mostly just. Retail. You don't get the second, third, fourth, fifth floors of of office space that uh, that uh, that that'll really help to uh, to bring in more businesses and also help businesses that are looking to expand. Because you talked about the Sandman Hotel, but but what I was talking about is there as far as purpose built commercial like office space, mm-hmm. we haven't had one of those in 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 decades, and uh, and there there seems to be real demand for that you know 21st century office space. Yeah, so uh, I guess just to be clear, when you're talking about service slots, we're not talking about getting rid of current parking spaces, but oh, maybe goodness, just no. finding a different way to uh, provide those. Right. I know when we bring up parking, there's a lot of people that uh, aren't too happy to hear about the elimination of potential parking Just move parking it underground spots. to a nice climate-controlled <laughs> area. Yeah, that would actually be better for everyone. You don't have to clear your uh, windshield in the, in the winter, so <laughs> it's a good move, I think. Um, so from that, I guess, uh, what, what kinds of... Um, Moving forward from this process, I mean, 24 applications, from what I understand, from what I read in the report for this tax exemption, uh, have been processed by the city. So uh, over 10 years that these tax exemptions have been in place, and only 24 applications doesn't sound like a lot. Do you expect with these proposed changes you would see a lot more uptake in the number of people applying for this? Yeah, I, I I think it could be, but I mean, I, until you really know the dollar figure of those applications, I mean, if a project, you know, if, if thinking of those mixed use commercial developments with commercial on the main floor, residential above, I mean, those are those are ten million dollar projects. So if the, if this is if this is uh, encouraging, you know, what two two to three of those per year, then I think that's significant. The the you know there were a number of other changes because the North Shore has the, the there's a bylaw specifically for North Shore, mm-hmm. a bylaw for downtown. They're different. Uh, some of it's confusing. And one thing I just really want to say the the administration looked at this and and there were there were quite a few different things that could have been changed but this was the one that there was complete agreement on and what we asked is don't let the don't let the whole process slow down uh, addressing this very key component and and the fact that this specifically is going forward I know there's a lot more work that they're going to do on it but uh, you know they recognize it as being significant and are and are pushing ahead with it and I think I think that's great uh, here with uh, Ch- Kamloops Chamber of Commerce President Joshua Nack so um, I mean you were part of this group that's uh, you know went through and, and and help develop some of these proposals that city staff will make to council. How, how difficult was that process? Was it tough for you guys to, to go through and, and figure out sort of what some of the suggestions would be? I mean, was it really a, a long period of time that you worked on this? No, I mean, I think the the ask from the business community was two things, or two primary things. One was uh, make this change. You know, it, it, it high tech is great, and we certainly want to see the tech community grow. But there's there's other businesses, even you know, that are ancillary to the to the tech community, or, or just uh, I mean, there's accountants, there's lawyers, there's there's all kinds of things that we want to see uh, in in our downtown area. So so that was one ask, and then the other ask was to harmonize the two, to to bring the North Shore um, tax exemption policy and the downtown one to just harmonize them and simplify it. And I think that's going to be coming as well. Is there a big demand for that? You, are you aware of any kind of big demand when it comes to um, office space? 
Well, I mean, I think it was Interior Health that just put out, out an RFP for what was it, seventy thousand square feet of office space, and uh, and I know that there are I know that there are developers, particularly in downtown, that are working with uh, with with some groups that are considering relocating to Kamloops. I know on the on the North Shore, we we've, we've got a building that has some some tech space in it, and and both of those cases, they're looking to expand. They want new space as well. So I I think I think there is demand. I think there's demand. You know whether and and where there's demand for other municipalities, what we want to really see is that that demand comes to, considers Kamloops as an option as well. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'll, I'll uh, get you out of the, excuse me, I'll get you out of here on this, Josh. Um, so when we're talking about, you know, the increase in office space, I mean, it doesn't sound like a, an amazing use of, of land just from a, a business perspective, right? I mean, there's no, no new business necessarily taking place. If we're talking about downtown, we want to bring people downtown. I always think of it as like a place to shop and that kind of thing and, and go to restaurants. So when we're talking office space, that doesn't necessarily help me uh, go downtown for any particular reason. But can you maybe talk about some of the spinoff that could be uh, had as a result of having more office space? There are obviously people that would have to go downtown to work, which could and then in turn, uh, you know, really have some economic benefits. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, the people that are that are working downtown or eating lunch downtown or shopping downtown after after work. And the other thing is we're starting to see a lot more residential that's being built in this downtown area. And then obviously they're on the on the North Shore, Tronquille Corridor as well. And, and the ability for people to be able to work and live in in you know in the same community is is really key for a lot of different things for for transportation for the parking issues that you talked about I mean if people don't have to drive to work that's one less car that uh, so I mean I think you know it's going to take both of those things but we're definitely seeing the residential the, the residential grow and we want to just make sure that there's lots of uh, lots of lots of opportunity for them to work in those areas as well yeah, I will. I'll add for that. I live downtown. I work downtown. I shop downtown, and I don't have to go very far, and I don't have go. to use my car ever, really. So it's. Uh, I, I'm a proponent of it, and I think other people should uh, consider doing that as well. Uh, well, Josh, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Right on. That was uh, Kamloops Chamber of Commerce President Joshua Nack. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking about your Kamloops Blazers. Uh, yeah, they're still working on that eastern road trip. They are a one zero and one so far, uh, with a overtime win in Brandon before having a shootout loss in Winnipeg. No, I got that wrong. Over Shootout win in Brandon, overtime loss in Winnipeg. So there you go. I'll be speaking with the voice of the Blazers, John Keane, after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Today is Monday, December the 9th. Thanks as always for tuning in. The Kamloops Blazers secured three of a possible four points over the weekend in Manitoba, scoring a shootout win in Brandon before losing an overtime to the Winnipeg Ice. Here to talk about what happened is the voice of your Kamloops Blazers, Mr. John Keane. John, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Thanks very much. How are you doing today? Yeah, not too shabby. How's things out? In, I assume you're in Saskatchewan now? Yes, actually, uh, a very Saskatchewan term. I just had to walk out of the uh, LBS, which uh, stands for uh, Liquor Board Store. It's a Saskatchewan thing. Of course, uh, lots of friends and family out here. Uh, day off and uh, night off here for the team. So, chance to spend some time and maybe a, a couple of uh, rum and egg dogs here later today. There you go. It's almost noon, so I think that's allowed now. <laughs> noon for you. Well, you know, it's, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so big week here for the Blazers uh, coming up here before the Christmas break. They got games in Moose Jaw tomorrow, Regina Wednesday, Saskatoon Friday, Prince Albert on Saturday. A lot of hockey for these guys coming up. Um, the Blazers will be a 
little bit shorthanded for this, uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in just a little bit. I want to start by looking back here uh, at what happened over the course of this past weekend. So on Friday night in Brandon, I wouldn't call it necessarily a goaltender's duel, given that there were eight goals scored, but there were 77 shots on net between the two teams and quite a few highlight reel saves from what I saw. I guess, how would you break down this win over the Wheat Kings there on Friday night? Well, I think I think you're right a little bit there. It was a goaltender's duel from the third period into overtime, and then into the shootout. But before that, yeah, nothing of the sorts. And you know that was that was the start. The Blazers, when they win a first period so far this year, are a perfect uh, eleven and zero. And uh, they had won that first period, yes, two nothing. And then the game just went off the rails on on the first uh, part of the second period. There are five goals in, in five minutes and ten seconds. The teams traded back and forth, and you know getting out of the period it was four four, and you don't feel good about that good start anymore and uh, two teams locked it down in the third and, and in overtime and then you know, eventually uh, you know decided in the shootout here so you know it, it was nice to get the two points I don't think anyone was was really happy with, with giving up the lead uh, twice and three times in that situation uh, but whenever you're in Brandon a place the Blazers hadn't won in in eight years so I think uh, you know you take the two points you, you learn lessons from it and uh, and then you move on well uh, kind of uh Following off of that, I mean, you talk about learning about holding on to leads. I mean, that wasn't the case on Saturday. So, um, you know, they didn't win the first period. It was 0-0 after one, but then they did get out the Blazers to a 3 to nothing lead heading into the third, and then things just kind of unraveled from there. Uh, I mean, what, what is your takeaway from that? I mean, you talk about learning to hold on to leads there in Brandon, but that uh, they obviously didn't learn anything when you're looking at what happened on Saturday night. Yeah, you know, the, the game really changed complexions with a, a major penalty to Montana on Ibuchi, one that I felt was, was undeserved. I know the hockey club felt it was undeserved. He was kind of uh, off balance getting to the net and, and ran into the goaltender uh, after the goal was scored. And, and rare you see a goaltender interference call when the play is over. I mean, there's no reason to interfere when the goaltender plays over. Um, uh, one of the referees, I think it was Tyler Adair, the back official, came streaming into the, into the scene, pointing, and, and obviously upset maybe he saw it different than than uh, than the rest of the officials no one reacted on the ice the trainer didn't come on to the goaltender uh, there was no sense of anything that really went wrong except maybe some incidental contact and uh, you know he got a major penalty right at the end of the period and you know that that carried over to the third and and uh, Winnipeg was able to get some momentum off that major power play they scored once uh, they scored a few minutes later to get it within one and then tied it up midway through. And uh, at that point, Sean Clouston called a timeout, 3-3, to settle things down. Uh, still felt pretty good about the situation. Uh, got the go-ahead goal in a power play, a 4-3, and, and with about six minutes to go. And, and uh, you know, they had a late push and, and got a break, uh, turnover behind the net, able to tie it up at four. And, and by that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of gas in the tank. If you look at overtime, uh, it just wasn't a situation where you, you felt good about it again. And Winnipeg has been really good in overtime this season. And they closed it out with, with the overtime victory on Michael Tepley's goal. But, yeah, overall, uh, you know, it's a tough way to go. And you really think back, and Onyebuchi was dominating that game physically, defensively. Uh, when they lost them, they just didn't really have that presence. And, uh, and it definitely uh, turned the tables. Yeah, definitely disappointing when you're up 3 nothing to uh, to give that up. But uh, they do sometimes say, you know, the three-goal lead is one of the worst ones to have in hockey. So that proved <laughs> yeah. to be the case there on Saturday night. Um, uh, but I was going to ask you as well here, um, you know, how, how was it being in Winnipeg? I mean, this is the first season back for, for Winnipeg to have a, a WHL team in quite some time, getting the team from, from uh, uh, Kootenai, and, and I heard you actually call them the Kootenai Ice a couple of times, I believe, in your broadcast. So, I mean, just uh, how, how was that? I mean, a bit of a, bit of a change here for you. 
Yeah, I always been, you know, I've been calling the Kootenai Ice for 16, 17 years, and whenever you have the, the ice in your head, you just kind of say Kootenai, and I think I was joking in the broadcast, the over-under on how many times I would say Kootenai was six and a half. That was probably around five or six, so uh, it's just kind of old habits die hard, right? And, you know, a bit of a different venue, different look. It's uh, it's where the University of Manitoba plays the Bisons. Um, you know, and it's actually the broadcast area is, is really neat. You're right on top of the one bench. You're right there. You can hear the coach and the referee have their chats. You can hear a lot of the chatter on the ice. It's a, it's a real uh, unique uh, perspective to call a game from. And it's almost like you, you remember how fast the game is at that lower level. Like you, you remember that, um, you know, it is a, these players are really good and really quick. And you kind of lose that as the higher you get up in the broadcast booth. You're right down there, you really get that feel for it. So it's just a temporary rink. Uh, the plan is to you know be in a new facility, a brand new facility in in two years. Uh, so we'll see if uh, if the Blazers go back there, uh, you know, in, in December of 2021, if that's still their setup there. But it's not the greatest. It's not you know it's not ideal. They have a different practice facility uh, as opposed to where they play out of. So that's uh, some logistics. I think that is difficult on that hockey club. Yeah, um, and just going back to that earlier point, I think when the team maintains its name, I think that's when it gets tricky. I, I think I like football, the LA Chargers, just to want to call them yeah, San Diego, totally. and yeah. but like when yeah. you look at like in hockey, the Atlanta Thrashers became the Winnipeg Jets. I never once yeah. got that confused. So if you change the team <laughs> no. name, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> now, uh, upcoming games, like I said, uh, off the top, four games here uh, this week before hitting that Christmas break. A lot of hockey for the Blazers to play here in these next uh, five, six days. Uh, they are going to be a little bit shorthanded. Uh, Connor Zary, one of eight draft-eligible players, is now going to be attending the uh, World Junior Canada Selection Camp. So he was a late addition. I believe yesterday got the news that he was going to be uh, replacing an injured player out of Moncton. Um, so, obviously, he's pretty happy, I guess. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about Connor Connor Zeri being invited and just his excitement. I mean, I'm sure you've had a chance to speak to him, and, and he's got to be uh, pretty pretty thrilled to be uh, getting the nod here. Yeah, well, he, he went on quite the rant there uh, last week about being pissed off and mentioned that several times when he didn't get the initial uh, call to the selection camp. And, you know, I think everybody had the feeling he was right there, uh, and I think the door was open for him to be added at a later date because when you have 31 players, the logistics of having everybody healthy sometimes uh, of those 31 is tough here. So I think the window was open. It was a really cool moment, actually, because uh, – uh, the, uh, the the general manager, Matt Barnsley, had found out uh, during that game against Winnipeg, uh, in Winnipeg, uh, and uh, and once Connor was getting back in the hotel, he was one of the last guys off the bus, uh, Matt Barnsley and head coach Sean Clouston were waiting for him in the lobby and pulled him aside, uh, and uh, you could see uh, a big smile come up and then some handshakes uh, and some hugs, and uh, it was a really cool moment. One, one of those behind-the-scenes moments you don't really get a chance to uh, hear about or see, and um, at that point, uh, a couple of the players were asking what's going on as they were waiting in the elevator and uh and uh connor kind of said i'm going to i'm going to camp boys and everybody gave up a big cheer big holler and there was lots of hugs and handshakes so it's a, it was a real cool moment there uh late uh, saturday night uh with the uh with the, his teammates and, and the management so now uh yeah bags are packed and uh, he flew out here out of regina uh, earlier this morning and uh, he's going to try to, you know, at least show his best. He probably is on the outside looking in based on being a late injury replacement, but uh, quite the experience for him for sure.
Yeah, well, even to follow that up, I know, uh, you know, like I had mentioned, uh, eight draft eligible players are attending camp, but uh, for forever, as long as I can remember, this has always been considered a 19-year-old's a tournament when it comes to Team Canada. So going to be tough for an 18-year-old to make the squad. I expect uh, Alexi Lafreniere, the top prospect here in the uh, 2020 draft, to make the team. But outside of that, it's going to be tough for anybody who is uh, under the age of 19 to, to make the squad. It's just it's just the way it's always been. But definitely a good chance for Connor to show what he's got. And, and he's got a few good uh, to get this opportunity about his uh, prospects moving forward to make some of these national teams as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a step, right? He, he's already represented Canada before. You know, he was uh, overseas uh, in the summer at U18s. So, I mean, they know who he is. And, and uh, you mentioned you're, you're just dealing with, with uh, the best of the best, uh, the World Juniors, the top program, the U20. And then you also have to factor in that are players already in pro hockey and in the NHL that, uh, you know, have the potential to come back. Now, mm-hmm. some of those players won't come back. Kirby Doc won't be coming back. But uh, today, Joe Valeno. Uh, was added to that list uh, playing in the Detroit Red Wings system. So he comes back uh, at 19 to uh, to play on that team. He's a centerman as well. So, you know, we're talking about the, the best players in the world uh, and uh, and in Canada. And at 18, to be an underager, as far as this tournament is considered, that, that's quite the honor. And if anything, you know, if he doesn't make the team, you know, Great try, good effort. You're on the radar, and remember, this really is, as you mentioned, a 19 year old tournament. So, you know, next year when the tournament is back in Canada, uh, you know, you really have to look at an opportunity here that uh, that Connor Zeri will be will be in that mix. Yeah, always fun to represent your country, and even better when you get to do it on home soil. So, I'm sure Connor will be looking forward to that. But right now, he's got some work ahead of him, and and try to make this team and, and represent Canada here in the Czech Republic starting on Boxing Day. So, we'll be paying attention to the tryouts here. But thanks so much for doing this, John. Really appreciate you taking the time and. Uh, yeah, yeah, four games here over the next six nights, so a lot of hockey for you to, to cover, and we'll, we'll be listening here, so thanks so much for doing this. All right, yeah, Jeff, you have a good rest of your week. Thanks a lot. You as well. That was Kamloops Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane, and of course, uh, as I had mentioned, tomorrow night, they are in Musha to take on the Warriors. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and a big thank you to all of you for listening, and remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.